Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Double Act with myself and Graham Brown. And this week's episode is on emotional and social intelligence, a topic dear to my heart, having studied it for some years, I suppose 20 years or so, and been aware of it um, through the great work of my dear friend, Dr. Ruvin Baron. Now, Ruvin, who fought in three or four Arab-Israeli wars, was the person who Daniel Goldman wrote the uh, journalist wrote a lot of his work with in discussion with Reuven and other people who did this but he was the psychologist looking at um battle shock and things like that that went on and how people handle their emotions that began to create a psychometric to measure your emotional and social intelligence so without further ado Graham good to have you here this week and forgive my uh, nasal tones I have the end of a cold <laughs> Um, but love, lovely to have you here. What, what's uh, what's emotional and social intelligence really mean for you, Greg? Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. Well, we've all just seen a lot of interesting world events in the last few months, few weeks, including only very recently the Football World Cup final, which looking at all the headlines said it was an emotional final. We always associate emotion with those big events, the roller coaster of emotions that it said in the final, which can be seen, I think, in the business world as something of a, a negative. It's always spoken of in the pejorative, isn't it, emotion? And yet, hopefully today, Jonathan, in our journey into inspiring leadership, we'll look at emotion differently and look at actually it's a, a very powerful tool if harnessed and there are obviously both positive and in negative emotions, but the awareness of emotion is so important. The acknowledgement of it and learning how to use it effectively, read not only your emotions, but other people's emotions as well. So I think it's, it's quite core, isn't it, to what it means to be both a leader and inspiring. But at the end of the day, ultimately, it's key to your own personal well-being and happiness, isn't it? Look how many, we, you know, as young lads, and even now, we both have dysfunctional emotions, don't we? Yeah. Which surface from time to time. And I'm sure you're going to talk about your course as well today, Jonathan, dealing with these things. We all go through it. So, yeah, I think it's it's a fascinating area, and it's one that we're learning more about every single day. Yeah, yeah. Oh, beautifully put. And, and what a lovely uh, segue. Emotional and social intelligence, its definition, um, is really using your emotions intelligently. And, and we think about three things, your uh, emotional self-awareness. So when you feel an emotion in your body, um, are you aware of it? Can you actually describe the emotions you have? And this is what's been so unusual, having done the Hoffman Institute seven day process, Graham, was I thought I was really good at this. And yeah, I can. Yeah, I'm really high EQ, you know, I'm not very, uh, you know, I, I thought I as a young lad, I wasn't very clever because my teacher told me I was thick and I was going to be a dustman. That's another pattern that I've been trying to prove that I'm not worthless or thick. 
I'm worthy, not not in a in a in a nice way, but uh, in, in, in I'm worth something, and, and I'm also clever enough. But but um, this self awareness of your own emotions, so being able to recognize your emotions and manage them, your own emotions. A lot of people cannot manage their own emotions; they just mm. they go off on one. They so they have a stimulus, and they immediately respond to it. Bang. They forget that between stimulus and response, you always have choice. But people forget they have choice and they go, well, he made me do this. You know, mm -hmm. she shouted at me and I had to smack her in the face. No, that's you chose to do that. And, and people abrogate that and say, it's, it's not my fault. It, it was, you know, the other football fan, you know, shouted at me. And so I just had to attack him, whatever it was. So the first one is the emotional self-awareness. Uh, the second one is obvious uh, of yourself. And the second one is mutual emotional and social self-awareness, recognizing in others mm. what emotions are going through. As, as you and I are on this podcast, am I able to read with certain cues on Zoom what emotions you're going through, whether it be a tone of voice or mm. even micro cues? There's a whole area of uh, reading body language, which mm. is a form of emotional intelligence. To, to better get a connection with someone, not to use it manipulatively, but just to recognize when someone's behaving differently from the norm, what is it telling you? You might not know exactly what it is, but you know something's amiss. And uh, the thing that I found on the, the Hoffman process, many things I learned about emotional patterns, one was that putting on a mask, putting on a brave face, not showing your emotions, you know, uh, the, the, the pictures behind you um, that my wife very kindly uh, did for me while I was away on the program means so much to me, but it's a combination of the death of my father when I was two and a half and, and he was the pilot, um, going away to boarding school at eight or nine uh, for about five years and, and, and then boarding school again in the army at, at the age 16 to 18 and then in the army for 20 years. The message was always don't show your emotions. You know, if you're going to be resilient, which is the topic of our next uh, series uh, next month, then you have to bottle up your emotions. Don't cry. Don't feel. Just do it. So the danger is that many people learn to just do. They do, 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 do. And then they die. And um, so that's the second of the one. This this awareness of reading other people's emotions and many people are are detached from those emotions. I'll talk about that later on. But the third area is your reading of reality or of the environment, the situation you're in. Are you good at reading and managing the environment? The, the, in the second area, not only do you have to read other people's emotions, but how can you manage them in a meeting or an interaction? You can't control them. You can just manage them. It's like having a monkey. They talk about the, the monkey brain. It's like having this monkey in your arms. It, it's very strong. You cannot control it. You can't control someone else's emotions. The only thing you can manage your own thoughts and your own emotions. But the third area is this one of, of the reality, reading the reality and the environment and adapting to it, uh, the getting out of it if it's unhealthy for you or dealing with it and influencing it. So what yeah. comes up for you, Graham, as I sort of um, share those three areas of yourself, mutual with others and, and the environment, reading the environment you're in. Yeah, Jonathan, I'm very curious to hear about your Hoffman experience, not because I'm deflecting the question back on you. Uh, more, you know, where I guess we share a similar riff in our growing up is, you know, being 
the slightly emotionally constipated male, which there are a lot from our part of the world, you know, the ones who probably have been primed to behave in a certain way and deny emotions. And that's global, isn't it? That's not just a British thing, that's global. But in the UK, certainly it has been done as an art form to some degree. Mm -hmm. And especially if you're a young male, you know, suppressing emotions more, like, you know, not, not being able to manage your emotions, I think. And it's a lifelong journey, isn't it? Like, if I was to look at myself 10, 20, 30 years ago, I would say that the biggest improvements in all of that is how I've sort of learned to manage my emotions. And really, I mean, you could put it down to being just getting older and more mellow, you know, not reacting to everything so much, certainly less angry. Mm. I was a very angry young kid. And the, the interesting thing, and I, hopefully we talk about this as well today, Jonathan, mm. is like anger for me was an energy which I really believe helped me get ahead in life. You know, I wasn't out there smashing things up. I was doing the opposite. I was, you know, an entrepreneur creating things. Like they always say, like an entrepreneur as a kid is either going to become a criminal or a success. <laughs> you know, it's a fine line. So it's, it's, it's that emotion. It's that sort of the monkey, the, the untamed beast, isn't it? So I'm very curious, like your experience with Hoffman, how you having all that sort of life experience now going to put yourself through this process and knowing, having all these kind of layers, trauma, emotion, and so on. What, what did you get out of it? What was there like one thing that you could practice on a daily basis now that you can say fundamentally that mm. has changed mm. how I do mm. things? Uh, it's a lovely question. And Firstly, um, the seven-day Hoffman process I did was at, in Skipton in North Yorkshire at Broughton Hall. Um, and the setting was lovely of it. 24 people from around the world, uh, from Dubai, Germany, America, uh, the, the UK. Fascinating different religions, different cultures, different sexual orientation. Um, and all these strangers came together with three psychotherapists in their 60s. Great deal of experience, wealth of experience. And... We were all wary when we arrived. We'd chosen to go. We weren't being for, or maybe some people had said to some of them that you need to go on this. Um, but the point was we had to do a very comprehensive, um, thorough questionnaire before we did. Probably took about nine hours, all about our life, our upbringing, our parents, the patterns we had uh, of behavior, the negative and the positive ones. Because in some way, Bob Hoffman, who began this work about 50 years ago in America and California, uh, now, sadly, long dead, Bob, but um, I've listened to recordings of him. And he was really talking about the fact that we have negative love. Uh, we, we look for positive love, but we actually are brought up with quite a lot of negative love. And with that, that little child, as soon as it has negative love, anything it's done, it's other people and the way they react to that child makes the child feel shame. Mm. And we'll do anything to get away from our shame. Indeed, one of the exercises was to write out my shame that I had, the many things that filled a whole big sheet, and to then wrap it up and burn it in a fire and let go of those things and what I choose to have instead. So it's trying to work on the on the neuroscience of the old patterns of baby that you have in the synaptic connections between the dendrites and the axons, that, that if you can start new patterns of behavior over some 90 days or more, you'll create new neural pathways, which will get... Um, 
they'll get a myelin sheath on them uh, and that will give it like super super uh, super fast broadband connection speeds rather than the old route which wasn't mm. serving you so um mm. in answer to your question it was i really have recognized my patterns which i inherited from my parents and and my in in the case they talk about surrogate parents so i was you know my father was killed when i was two and a half so um i went away to boarding school at eight to nine uh, and so the housemaster until until when you come as sort of adolescence or or certainly that period about 13 those people gonna be very influential also my grandmother who was in the home with us my mother was looking after her stopping her dying she was given six months to live and she lived another 10 years um with with my mother which is quite a burden for her to do but so interesting you picked up anger in my environment anger was not an acceptable emotion hmm. so my mother who must have been very angry that she at 33 was widowed she thought she was going to be admiral sir paul and lady perks she she they all said paul was one of the top naval officers fast jet pilot bit of a hero he was going to be a naval commander uh, and an admiral and she would be an admiral's wife she even had the boat cloak that, that naval officers wear that she still wore until her death when she was out on a walk so she saw that was her calling but she didn't get it mm. so she had great resentment about that uh, and because you had the stiff upper lip bit like the royal family and we all spoke well and we had manners and we didn't yawn publicly without putting our hand up or whatever it might be there was all these um expectations loaded in so I had passive aggression. There's this idea that it wasn't safe to go open aggression. So it's all subtle, little digs, which is actually much more deceitful, deceptive mm. and, and lacking in courage. But a lot of it goes on. And then also um, there were certain standards that were set, what admirals did, what generals did. And even when I was a year into being a second lieutenant, my mother was saying, Jonathan, don't yawn. Generals don't yawn. So she was setting this expectation that I was going to become a general. So as you set yourself very high bars, if you don't achieve mm. those, that sense of achievement, then you make a judgment about it. That's not what so-and-so does. That's not what we do. And so a lot of criticism and judgment is part of my old makeup. And, mm. and dealing with that and some of the, the, the very practical things that we did, which were, were quite fun and quite different. But it, it, it's this interesting pattern in, in emotions between uh, when you see a, a gap between you and somebody else, which is often the cause of judgment or criticism. Mm, mm. Uh, either you, Graham, see yourself one up on me, Jonathan, or I, Jonathan, see myself as one up on you. Let's say I see myself as one up on you. That means I, I think of myself better than and you less than. And this is where we get the problems we talked about before, cultural diversity, diversity, equality, mm. inclusion, that people think races, sexuality, whatever it is, one's better than the other. It's a, it's a human big hang-up. So my problem was grandiosity, it's called, one up. I, I, I thought myself better there. But there were other occasions when I felt shame, uh, mm. which is linked being one down. And so I, I think before I hand it back over to you, we, we, um, we take it further. The big learning for me was that I, like many men, and a number of women, but it does seem to be many of the men who have to be the strong one. You know, I think of my brother Graham, who was nine when his father was killed. Now, he knew our father, uh, so he had that, but he suddenly became the man of the household. Hmm. 
And so he had to be very strong and um, to bury his emotions and not cry, certainly away at boarding school, that wasn't the done thing. And so you learn, this is safe and approved of, this is shameful and you don't do that. We don't do that kind of thing around here. And, and, and either as children, you copy your parents and you go, this is the way to do it. And you go, and, and you're so surprised when you go out to other fa families. Did you ever go to other families where you go, I can't believe they're allowed to do that. They can just yeah. grab any food from the fridge and just help themselves. It's just, that's not the done thing. So there's a judgment, you know, you're one up on them or, or you're feeling one down because they have everything. I mean, I, one of my things at boarding school was everybody else had more money than me mm. and they also had fathers. Mm. Uh, and so I felt less than worth less than mm. them. Uh, and literally I was worth less than them. They were richer. Um, and I was therefore called Stone Age Perks because my clothes were all hand-me-downs from both brothers wow. and a friend. And so, and they thought my clothes had come from the Stone Age. Now, you can carry that on for years unless you start mm. to recognize them. So I don't know what comes up for you as I, I share that, Graham. What's your thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting how so much of our emotions are really determined by the opinions of other people. The one up, one down. It's very interesting, isn't it? That we all experience that to some degree. And that sense of shame ultimately hurt vulnerability that we get from how others judge us or how we think they judge us. And obviously that's instilled from early life events and very much the opinions of our parents that that becomes the MO for us growing up. And then as we go into the world of work, we look for strategies. These are the coping mechanisms, aren't they? F to find ways to address that such that we're never exposed to that. If we're ambitious, we'll then gravitate towards a, an environment, you know, if you're, for example, <coughs> affected by one up, one down, you'll gravitate towards an environment, which is very stratified, very much structured in literally ranks. So you can imagine the military environment is very attractive as a way of as a coping mechanism for that kind of early experience. And so, you know, I find it fascinating because, you know, when we talk about emotions, Jonathan, we have to think of emotions not as these isolated neuropsychological phenomena. Um, they are occurring at the brain level of chemistry and physics and biology inside our heads. But yet, really, we have to understand emotion and emotional intelligence as well as this longitudinal phenomena, meaning, you know, that when we think about how we feel, the challenge is, is that a lot of what we feel has been inherited, not just from our childhood, but from our parents' childhood mm. and, you know, their parents' childhood. And, and this is, you know, like obviously your, your father in tragic events when you were just, you know, you, you wouldn't even really understood it as a kid as well. And still that must've taken like years and years to process. Um, but you never really knew him. Right. And that, mm. that, that kind of trauma is going to affect you for the rest of your life without a doubt. And yet, you know, we are being affected by their decisions as well. You know, I think my, my, my grandfather was a shipbuilder in Glasgow, you know, the, the glorious pearl in the, the empire's sort of industrial crown, right? It's kind of that city would produce this nation of this sort of generation of hardworking 
you know, very Calvinist Protestant men. And he was one of them. And mm. his, his father committed suicide. Mm. His father, I think he, you know, he got into debt. He was a drinker. And then um, he, he put his head in the gas oven and killed himself. God, I'm sorry. And, and it, there were six siblings and my grandfather was the oldest. So, you know, a bit like with your brother, it's like now he had to become the man of the household. So, you know, I'm still affected by that now because yeah. that affected my mom and that affected me and the emotions. And I, you know, this is the, like the first part of that emotional intelligence is being aware of that, right? Your own emotions, like where's that coming from? And the second part is really realizing you don't have to be a victim of it. And because, you know, you're playing out this trauma, this echo of what's happened. It could be like 50, 60, maybe a hundred years ago. And it's like this chain of patterns, which does not change in a lifetime. And it passes on from generation to generation. And I think that's why the emotional work is so important because it allows you to break that chain. It allows you to accept. And I think there's a big part of this first is acceptance. And we talked about this last time, live, give, forgive. And, you know, I think in the third stage of my life, you know, if, if I break it down into three, three, threes, then this third stage, it's about forgiveness and it's mm. like looking back and forgiving you know, my dad for the way he was and, you know, my mom for the way she was and then my mom's dad for the way they were, you know, their attitudes towards emotion as well. They were like very much, you know, not a, a single emotion shown in that family, mm. you know, very mm. sort of Glaswegian, like, toughen up, you know, mm. and, and not enjoyment and, didn't drink, didn't enjoy themselves. And I, it's funny, Jonathan, you, you remember small sort of like anecdotes about these people is that my grandfather, I remember he bought, he always used to buy when, when he got his pension, he picked up this bar of dairy milk chocolate and he would store it in the cupboard and he used to take it out. And as a kid, if I, you know, if he got a bar of dairy milk, it's like gone straight away. He'd get it out. He'd break off one square and then put it back in the cupboard. And I remember seeing that for the first time and like just my jaw as a kid just dropped like dung. Yeah, yeah. And you, you, that was his emotions impacted by his parents' poverty that's yeah. made him like that. So you asked me a question, how does it, if, you know, how do I feel about it? I think we have to consider emotions in this sort of very longitudinal um, context to understand like, where is this coming from? And also being aware of it and we can also break free from it. You know, th those sort of early life events don't have to determine us. I, I, I'm firstly, I'm deeply moved by your story and your family connections. It means so much to me that you share this with me and everybody listening. But I think you've hit the nail on the head with this breaking the chain. That the fact that um, what happened to great grandfather with him committing suicide and the shame that was associated with that in the family would be carried on and then passed on to grandfather and then to mother and so on. And, and, and if we're not careful and, and we don't have, as you say, live, give and forgive, I think the, the, the awareness is the first one. You've got to be aware of what went on in your childhood, in your parents' childhood, in your parents' parents' childhood and how that's impacted the way you think about the world, the way you view the world, whether it's safe or not safe, how people are, how everybody's like this or whatever it might be. But then the after the awareness is the acceptance and the compassion. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. You've got to have compassion for your parents. I mean, part of the exercise, which was so powerful, was imagining meeting my young mother, my five-year-old wow. child, sitting on a riverbank. I created the, it was a visualization, a riverbank, at, diddling my toes in the water with my mother, Trisha, five, another little child beside me. Now, she grew up as an only child. She wanted brothers and sisters. She never had them. Her mother was very worthy. She was the wife of a mill owner in Yorkshire. And, and she set up the first family planning clinic for the Halifax. So she was busy on committees, but children weren't her thing. So she either had uh, someone to a nanny to look after my mother or very early on sent my mother away to boarding school. Mm. So my mother went to boarding school. My grandmother went to boarding school. My great grandmother went to boarding school. I went to boarding school. And then the same again on my ex-wife's family. She was boarder, her father, her mother, grandfather, and so on, all boarded. Now, boarding school is its own story and so on. It has many good things about it, but it has many aspects where you get detached from your emotional intelligence. You have to read mm. and survive in quite a jungle environment. So you've got to work out, how do I adapt to these people? Do I fight them? Freeze, flight, fight, adapt, you know, whatever it is. But I think these days, only the strong can be vulnerable is a, is a saying I love. Mm. But at boarding school, it was not safe to be vulnerable. In mm. the army, it was not safe to be vulnerable because people would take the piss out of you or they'd rib you or they'd have some banter, um, which often fagging, was... Fagging, as they called it, wasn't it? Fagging was at boarding school, yeah. Deeply brutal and yeah. isolating and shame-based. You know, you were trying to make someone ashamed of what they'd done or who they were or their very identity, as if some people wanted to be invisible. And and so to create psychological safety is the ultimate in any work environment or mm. any team that you've got if you're a, a leader of a team. And I think that's what I love so much about the seven days on the Hoffman process, as well as the fact we were completely without technology. I've really not come back to my addiction to technology, as I think I mentioned to you before I went away. I got rid of all wearable tech. I got rid of my Apple Watch, all this stuff that's measuring everything. That's why you're, you're detoxing, Jonathan. That's why you got this cold. I think it's, I'm it's detoxing. Not just, yeah, yeah. You're detoxing a lot of stuff, and it's just uh, coming all out of every orifice. Right all the now. gunk, all the gunk <laughs> is coming out. The mental, emotional gunk is coming out. I think that's I great. Think, I think it's great. Well, and but it is this point about how can you create an environment where it's really psychological? Yeah. Seven days with 20, uh, 23 strangers and three. Uh, psychotherapists they were all strangers to me but by the end of it we'd all laughed more cried more and had a stronger connection than I'd ever done in mm. my military days and in the military days you sometimes were bonded by shared hardship uh, yeah. loss of a colleague war operations whatever it might be you had to bond quickly and so we'd have techniques mm. for doing that but I think just the final point before I hand back over to you what I learned to do, so I wasn't teased as I was at boarding school age nine uh, and later again in the army boarding school age 16 to 18, was I aimed to be perfect and I aimed to be a high performer. So I was beyond reproach and I wouldn't be criticized and judged by other people because I was doing so well. And so th that's uh, one of my you know, patterns of behavior, which is not helpful anymore. So actually mm. being imperfect and being happy with it, that I am enough. I know it's a, a, an overused term, but you are enough. 
Mm. It's really important to know it. I, I don't know whether any of the stuff I've just shared resonates for you. No, I, yeah. Oh, what can I say? Hopefully it resonates for you listening as well. That, you know, I, I think that there's a group of people, I'd class my, myself and yourself as one of the Taipei's, I guess, in the old school psychological uh, analytical definition that the ambitious, um, that not necessarily males, but obviously there's a lot of males in that group, the Taipei's who uh, really, their curse, if you like, was what got them ahead in their early years. And then in the later years, the blessing was the undoing of that, right? That was kind of a key part of it. You know, especially if you're an entrepreneur, um, you know, generally a social misfit, rule breaker, you know, come from those kind of environments where if they were really good looking, really successful, really intelligent, you know, the, the A star student at, at university or school liked by everybody, they wouldn't need to go and start their own business <laughs> or they wouldn't need to go and be successful. I mean, if you look, for example, at celebrities, like every single one of them is broken. You know, why, why are celebrities, as soon as they get success, like struggling with like drugs and alcohol relationships is because that was the curse that got them there in the first place. You know, um, I think it's George Michael star people in the lyrics. He says, you know, maybe your, your mama didn't love you enough. Maybe your daddy didn't love you enough. It's that star people, isn't it? That is the quality that drives people. And yet it gets to a stage in life where you have to kind of like step out of that and realize, look, this is going to get me so far, like harness that energy to get you there. But after that, it's all downhill. You know, if you're like in your thirties and you're riding that rocket of just high ambition, it's, you know, the, the margins become diminishing. Right. So I think that's kind of, what what made us is also the undoing of us, Jonathan. Yeah, it's it's oh. a it's a dual it's a blessing and a curse, isn't it? It's like you know I, I don't know about you, but my, and uh, you listeners as well. It's like I don't know if you're the same, but I, I remember talking to my wife. Oh, I, I tell you what it is. I remember watching my son, and he must have been at five years old, and I I just watched him like eating an apple. I remember sitting there like for, for it must have been at like, five minutes without a word, just watching him eating an apple. And just, he was really into it. And I was just like really enjoying just this experience. Cause you know, for all my life I'd been like busy, 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 busy. I was just watching this boy eat an apple and didn't do anything. Wasn't checking the phone. And afterwards I, I said, Harry, what were you thinking about when you're eating an apple? And he went, nothing. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, that's like, how, how, how is that possible? And so, you know, I don't think unless you have that kind of like what's going on wired upstairs, you wouldn't realize that that energy is actually, it's, it's kind of, it's the, uh, the yin and yang, not yin and yang. What do you call it? The, 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 the Hindu sort of idea of the, the God being both fire and destruction and creation as well inside your brain and your heart, if your soul. Yeah. Well, you, you, you're really onto something and there's so many threads there that I want to pick up on uh, beautifully put by you. The thing I, I found over the, I don't know, 30 years of coaching CEOs and leaders and teams is that the most apparently successful ones are in some ways quite dysfunctional. Now, some mm. of them are not. This is, you cannot generalize. You can't say this is like this and that's like that. But as you say, that the the dysfunction drives us. It's the curse that 
that drives us to prove, like me proving by being high performing in everything I do, proving to a long dead teacher who told me I was thick, that I was good enough. Hence, I wanted to become, you know, get my MBA, being a visiting professor at a business school and all this kind of stuff to prove her that I was good enough, that negative love, trying to, that shame, trying to, to break it. So, so in some ways people go, oh, this is the, this is the, the, the source of my success is, you know, cause I was from a tough tenement, uh, you know, flats in, in a part of, of Belfast and that was drove me on. Yeah. And then at later on, the cure is the awareness, the acceptance and the new patterns of behavior. Because otherwise you pass it on to the next generation and they become as dysfunctional as you were. Fine, it might have got you some success, but the problem with many of the very successful people is they're never satiated. They're never no. happy. They're always when you Jonathan, when you made your first million, you want to make your second, your third, and your fifth. And you go, really? Like, well, I'm I'm poor in comparison to others. Like, like who? You're paid 1.2 million. Yeah, well, my boss is paid 1.4. So I'm not good enough. Well, what? where does this come from? And so what happens is people have this uh, around their inner emotional child, this negative love, this shame mm, mm. that they're trying to shake off this, this, get this off me, this skin, get this off me. And so they go through certain roles they take on and jobs they take on. And they're always striving to escape from this thing that's almost it's within them. Mm. So they 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 self-soothe with work addictions. And particularly many of those that we are talking about that we know and ourselves. I think I've been quite a workaholic much of my life. Mm -hmm. Or they look for a new relationship. The next person, they're gonna make me happy. An upgrade. They're, they're gonna take in, you know, I'm gonna get better. The problems I've had is just because of the person I'm with. When I get rid of them and I get a new one, they'll solve all my problems and I will be perfect or sex addiction, or whatever it might be, or alcohol, you know, I'll drown myself in the bottom of this glass, and then I'll be happy, and the world will look rosier through the bottom of the tumblers of the glasses, um, or drugs, or whatever it might be, but but people find these addictions, hmm. and 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 the other thing, I, I before I pass it back over for you, for your, for your latest thinking, is that what happens is we get busy doing stuff, hmm. like achieving the next promotion, getting the next job. Um, I talked about the 45 degree line between on the Y axis, your challenges on the X axis, your abilities to meet those challenges. And that 45 degree line is where your abilities perfectly match the challenges you're facing in life and opportunities you get. And, and there was this theory that living above the 45 is where you're going to be most successful because although it's a place of fear and uh, and you might fail, it's also where the greatest uh, stretch comes and the greatest learning. But then actually I'm starting to think now being on the 45 is just fine. Yeah. Because actually then I'll have enough time for leave my wife, um, for my children, four children, two grandchildren, and I'm sure there'll be more to come. And my own health, my own well-being, being in tune, that was the other thing is, is I learned on the process that I'm so busy doing that I wasn't busy being. And here I have a little prop um, for those listening. You won't see it, but it's a a little toy bee, <laughs> a little toy bee that I got, which people weren't to know when it, it when I got this and on the course. It was code for don't do be. And, and so busy this bee. Is, but no, I'm not going to be a busy bee. I'm just going to be. 
and, that is a, that's that's not a busy bee. That's a chilled bee because it's only it's got like four four arms, two yeah, two arms, it? two legs. Yeah, he's just he's a chilled out bee. And so being rather than doing, because people are yeah. busy, 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 dead. And, yeah. and 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 the picture at the back there, which people won't listening won't see, but is is the bottom f- frame is of my brother's Graham, uh, who, who recently a couple of years ago got attacked and almost died, and my other brother David, who did die of cancer in ten weeks. Now yeah. that matters to me because it's a reminder to to be and enjoy now this call mm. with you, Graham, mm. and and not so busy about the next thing I'm doing or worrying about the last thing I did or mm. or, or can I be present? Can I be attached to my body? Do I know what, how my body's feeling? Where's any tension? Because often when we're uptight, literally uptight, we'll feel it in our stomach or our shoulders or whatever. So I have a bit of massage, a sports massage to really ease off those kind of things and chill out a bit. Um, my emotional child, how, how does that five-year-old Jonathan who sat next to my mother feel? Does he recognize it? I sit next to my father. My father, you know, it's like you, you had a great-grandfather uh, mm. died of suicide. My uh, grandfather, uh, when my father was 10, my grandfather was also killed flying. His aeroplane flew into a hillside in the Lake District uh, on his way to go to his son's 21st birthday, who was a pilot in the Royal Air Force in Scotland. But he didn't make it to the birthday party because he plowed into a hillside with all the rest of the passengers and they all died. He was inventor for the war office. So uh, this is coming back to the let's be more attached yeah. to our emotions and also our spiritualism. Uh, I haven't really been in touch with my spiritual side. I know in Peru, we talked about doing the ayahuasca and the San Pedro, which was mm, very good. Mm. I should have done Hoffman before I went to Peru because I then would have really appreciated the spiritual side. And the spiritual side is your best self. Graham at his best, most grounded, most connected, less needy, not full of all these negative patterns of love behavior trying to get met but you're really content with that. And whatever spiritual guide you have, in my case, it happened to be Jesus. I was not expecting that. I haven't been following my Christian faith for about 20 years. I've sort of vaguely followed it, but really it came back to me strongly in a visualization. Now, didn't see yeah. that coming, but the point is, let's be more, if we, the whole thing about emotional and social intelligence quotient is to be more in the moment, more in your emotions, able to read you and myself and manage my emotions and manage the relationships I have with others. Um, mm-hmm. So that's just my latest thinking, Graham. What about you? Yeah. Well, what can I say? Like when I think about these stories of um, people dying. I know it's morbid, but yet, like Alan Watts, the philosopher, said that death is like a manure for for life. You know, it, it literally is the hummus, so to speak, the the rotting leaves for which we have to understand our purpose in life and obviously purpose is a big part of what we talk about in this podcast this journey more so really you know if the purpose is the goal of goals to use aristotle's terms is happiness isn't it i mean that's emotion is happiness if you're emotionally intelligent you're happy you're in touch with your own emotions you're a lot more happier and people around you are happier so really you know what are we talking about i think you know this sort of study of death is really powerful in helping us understand life you know not morbid i know people don't like to talk about it but i think they don't like to confront it the reality and there's a great book and we'll talk about books today i'm sure is that um i probably mentioned it is the regrets of the dying 
Yeah. Um, by Bonnie Ware, who was a palliative nurse. A palliative nurse is somebody whose whole job is end of life care. So, you know, it, it's not health. It's just comfort. It's people who are on the way out. So it, it requires a special type of person. And the people who do palliative nursing really do like doing it. They won't want to do any other type of nursing. And she wrote this book and it was really interesting because normally I wouldn't be interested in that kind of thing, but I, I read a write up about it and then I started reading it and I was just blown away. I mean, the book's okay, but the actual stories and the case studies and what people said about what the top 10 regrets were, were just phenomenal because they were almost universal. And this is the scary thing, Jonathan. It's like, regardless of background, language, gender, political views, pretty much everybody ended up on their deathbed with the same regrets. What so, were they? Well, there's actually a list of them. And I'll, I can just, if whilst we're talking, just bring them up now. But what was really interesting was that basically the top three regrets were let me just bring this up top three regrets were the obvious ones like um you know i wish i'd traveled more you know i wish i'd done all those kind of you know the things that i wish i'd done in my life that i never did right so i'm going to read them out here i'm just picking up an article here um number one i wish i had the courage to live a true life to myself not the life others expected of me just like so true, like, you know, people who kind of go to the grave with the music inside of them, right? That's so many. Number two, this is you and I, Jonathan. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Yeah. <laughs> like nobody ever says, oh, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. Number three, this is today's podcast. I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. Yeah. Number four, and this is sort of a bit bittersweet. I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. And I'm sure, like, I know you talk a lot about this now, and it's something I've sort of been thinking about now is that on reflection, I've been a bit lazy. I wish I'd done more of this because it's kind of like, oh, there's always time, Jonathan. It's like, you know, if you live in London, I always go to Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Whoever lives in London never goes to Buckingham Palace. Only tourists go there, right? Because it's always there. Number five, um, this was in the top five. I wish I'd let myself be happier. But it's interesting, the wording, isn't it? I wish I'd let myself be happier yeah and it, th these are like universal regrets so like when i think about death it's it's you know the people who are dying everything that's not important falls away all that bs all what you're talking about that you know that the seeking of negative love falls away because it's, it's you're not taking any of that with you it's now like what's important what really matters now and those five things, those five regrets are almost, if you flip them on the head, they're like, they're like a code. They're a handbook for living. If you listen to the regrets of the dying, you also understand what it means to live. You know, having the courage to live your true life, not sacrificing everything for work, having the courage to express your feelings, staying in touch with your friends and letting yourself be happy. You know, that alone, if somebody had told me aged 18, Graham, and you're going to live a long life. It may end a lot earlier than you thought. Um, but let me tell you this is that this is how you can have a good time and enjoy it and make sure you don't go out with anything else left on the table. These five things. Yeah. Why don't they teach us these things? Yeah. Maybe you only learn at the end. Yeah. I, I think it is so true. And um, that that list is, profound and and i 
went to the oncology department of a hospital in Nottingham. My mother-in-law, uh, Marguerite, was uh, recovering from a, a very bad cancer, which eventually was one of the factors that killed her a couple of years ago. But while sitting in the waiting room watching a football game, I was talking to all the people who were in the ecology department. And one by one, they started to talk about their own lives. And uh, about the fivers had a very profound conversation. And, and all of them admitted that they were dying. Uh, one was 80, one was about 26, one was in their mid-40s, and one was about 70. Uh, and, and it all seemed to be about relationships and having more fun. And that was what came out from me on Hoffman. I've been so damn intense. I'm going to have more fun. So already we have. I've been dancing in the kitchen and singing with Lee. Um, I've had lots of fun chasing a, a, a two-year-old granddaughter around the table and hiding behind the curtains. Where's grandpa? There's grandpa. And where's grandpa? There's grandpa. And like, you know, doing that many times and having a good laugh about it and making Riley, who's a little tiny and just under, under one, giggle away by just holding him up and farting into his into his tummy like that and just and the giggles that come from that is great and then i've got my 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 santa outfit and i'm going to dress up as father christmas <laughs> for my own children for my nice. own children and for my grandchildren and and have a big i've got a big sack with their presents in it and and like we have so serious a life and i've been mm. one of the most guilty of that and and that idea of being perfect and high performing and achieving all these things. And, you know, but but where's the joy? Where's the fun? And I, I certainly think my colleagues on the Hoffman process, a number of them said, I just want to be able to be myself, live my life rather than the life expected of me by my parents or whatever, or, or, or others, particularly if their religious background mm -hmm was very constraining on who they could marry or who they could be or whether they could be gay or not. It, it's it's so sad that people put on a mask. And mm. uh, and this was one of the questions that one of the people on the on the uh, the process said to me, a question for the podcast. He said, Jonathan, what does it mean to be sleepwalking in emotional intelligence terms? And 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 so this is an interesting point, Graham, and I don't know what your view is on this, but my answer to that question for this would be that I've learned that many people sleepwalk through their life. They are, as you say, emotionally constipated. I was pretty much so. Um, and I feel like I've woken up mm. to, to really my impact on other people, both negative and positive, but mainly my impact of the, the negative impact I have and, and, I wrote a letter of uh, of apology to my ex-wife, both appreciation of what she did as a wife and as a mother, but also the, the, of my behavior and that I was really genuinely very sorry about it. I don't expect a reply. I've just sent the letter. And, and I wrote to my daughters and I wrote to my wife as well. And, and it was very, very cathartic, very healing to recognize that we're often asleep and either we ignore the impact of our emotions on other people, or we are so ashamed of what we've done, we pretend it never happened. And we stay asleep. We are literally sleepwalking along, busy, 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 and then dead. And, and I think 
to truly wake up and live your life in this moment is something that's easy to say. It takes a lot more work to do and to be present. And it requires a little exercise each day, which is me mm. a quadrinity check-in to how's my body, how's my intellect, how's my emotional inner self, and how's my spirit? And what does my spirit guide say for me for the day? And it's a great way of checking in with yourself. Um, so so what sort of comes up for you, Graham, when I talk about that? Mm. I'm fascinated by this letter that you wrote to your ex. You know, there's we've all like if you're listening today i'm sure we've all transgressed and we've all hurt people in our lives haven't we mm. and um i'm sure we've somehow rationalized it as mainly their fault but they've got their own version of events but there's been people hasn't there i mean whether you've been in business if you've been in business there's relationships you know I, i've i've had business partnerships which have broken up I've had, you know, fallouts in business because I've been in business for many, many years, most of my life, really. And then, you know, personally as well, like we've all experienced, we've experienced fallouts. And, you know, I, this, this idea of amends, like atonement almost, you know, in, in like movies, there's always a scene where the hero atones, you know, and there are religious significance as well. I mean, you know, obviously like Jesus speaking to God, his father, and the atonement which is actually a, a, a biblical scene isn't it yeah um, and then in, in movies you have the equivalence of that atonement as well atonement meaning you know to make amends to release accept let go forgive and literally to be at one you know if you break that word down atonement means to be at one with somebody or something and yourself ultimately and i I came across this not so long ago when I was, um, I know you're an audiobook fan, but I listened to um, Russell Brand's Recovery. Yeah. Um, which I thought was really good. I'm not a massive fan of him, but I thought that his, the way he dealt with emotional intelligence, very emotionally intelligently, um, the whole the idea of addiction and um, addictive behavior, ultimately, you know, mm. it, it wasn't, obviously for him, it was drugs and sex, but, what he was saying is it's not those, the, these are what you call the seeking of negative love. These are the amelioration behaviors, you know, like you, you engage in these behaviors to nullify or to numb yourself against the pain. And that could equally be cocaine as it is success. Mm. These are addictive behaviors, you know, being a success is as addictive as a drug, right? And so, you know, he talked about in that book, the key to recovery, it's not just giving up the behavior, but it's also the atonement because unless you atone, the behavior will resurface as something else. Yeah. You gave up alcohol, but unless you atone, it will come back as something else. That's why, you know, you get many of these people who are once staring over the precipice, looking over the edge, you know, the people who are ex junkies addicts who like, reform their life and then suddenly they're like this super successful entrepreneur, right? They've just replaced one behavior for the other. And they will always have this monkey on their back, which is, you know, determining yeah. that what they feel and what they should be doing. So, uh, you know, this is the phase that I'm 
working through in my life is the atonement part. It's like, how do I make amends with people that I've hurt in the past? You know, including the people around me now, you know, my family, my loved ones, and the people I work with, you know, the forgiveness part. And it's, it's not easy. So like writing a letter to, I don't know, I don't have an ex-wife, but writing a letter to somebody like that, you know, there are people with equivalents of that in my life. You know, I've had strong relationships with it. We've had breakups and so on. You know, that, that to me is like, how do I go about that process? Because unless I do that, then I think that I leave it open for something else to creep in. Something will find its way in. Yeah. Yeah, uh, some other addictive behavior will replace it. That's that's the brain, the nature of it, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, when when you know when you've got away from your emotions, when you go into your intellect. So of the four, the intellect, the body, the emotional self, and the spiritual self. When you retreat into the intellect and you intellectualize and explain it all and justify it all, you know you're losing. It's when you can go into how am I feeling this in my body? Where where am I feeling this tension? Where am I feeling that I can't stomach this or it, it's really hurting my heart or whatever it might be? Or what does the little child need in you? And, and for me, getting away from my resentment, my passive aggression, my judgment, my criticism, one of my counters to that is acceptance of others, uh, who they are, and that I am imperfect and they are imperfect uh, and understanding them better. And um, I do like that whole idea of making amends, atonement, forgiveness. And also there's a big part. So, so part of my understanding of what it was like to meet my young mother, age five, when I was five, she was a five-year-old, what was her life like? And what patterns did she learn? And my father, what patterns did he learn? Was to, when you understand what you've copied from them or the reverse you did or whatever it might be, or other surrogate carers that I had like the boarding school housemaster then you can have compassion for them and understand mm -hmm. the life they had they mm -hmm. did the best they could with yeah. what they had they didn't know better now it's not to condone when people have been abused and all that kind of stuff they didn't know better that's a whole different area however at some stage you have to have compassion for yourself your own inner child and the hurt that I felt and why I was you know uh, trying to find different relationships, looking for love that would mm. would heal that sense of being abandoned by my father when he was two and a half. He didn't abandon He served his country and died saving the life of two other people. But that was essentially an abandonment. And yeah. so I was looking for love and doesn't condone any behavior I had, but but understanding it and having compassion for what you did then helps when you start spotting the pattern again. But I do think there's this whole idea of addictive behavior, success. I mean, even before we, we've been laughing about all these different things I was measuring. That was another yeah. form of my <laughs> another form of my addiction to be yeah. high performing. And yeah. so therefore I'd read more books. Um and, yeah. and when I'd read, you know, I'd only read 320 books in the last three years. Speed goodness, read as well. Goodness me. You know, and and of course I couldn't read because I was having a problem with my dyslexia. So I listened to those audiobooks, but then it became an obsession. And yeah. and when people spot obsessions in the ones they love, they need to help them realize it. But of course, as those who know with addicts, and I've had addicts in in the family that I've known, um, they won't recognize it themselves. Yeah. 
you can't yeah. say to them, do you not realize that you're a, a alcoholic or do you not realize that you have an addiction to work? And they go, no, no, I'm just, but, but there needs to be this, there's firstly the awareness, mm. then the, <laughs> the compassion and the atonement and then the new patterns, learning new patterns of behavior. Yeah got to be replaced by something else it's interesting you you see it a lot expressed in very innocuous ways there's a whole culture of for example with even just like something small and seemingly unimportant like reading of books oh you know you should be reading 320 books whatever a year that kind of thing and then i, I know people who they have the, they listen to the books on one and a half speed yeah and like, where's the enjoyment in this? Like that, and, and people say, like a lot of people talk to me about podcasts because obviously that's my business. And they say, oh, I listen to podcasts at one and a half times speed. And it's like, wait a minute. It's like, just, just stop. Just like, you know, you said that thing, like I've been so damn intense. It's like, I want to reach these people and just say, stop. Like just, just step off that merry-go-round. Take the book, like it, listen to it, enjoy it. Just like you would enjoy your lunch or your dinner with your wife, right? Not rush the thing. Slow that down or grab a, a physical paper. I love physical paper books, you know, and I just love having, I'm, I have a Kindle and I never read the bloody thing yeah. because it's like, I pick it up and there's like 50 books on it. And what am I going to read now? And I'm going to read a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit, of that. it's like a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. But I pick up a book and I'm in it and it's just analog slows me right down and I'm enjoying it. And to me, that's like life. You know, you don't want to listen to this thing at one and a half times the speed. You want to no. stop it, slowing down, and enjoy that experience because that's all there is, folks. Because when you listen to that one at one and a half times speed, there's another one at one and a half times speed. And there's another one, and there's another one. It's endless. Yeah, and, and, and this is the point in us offering up now um, some of the audio books or books that we've already done the work for people and listened to them. And we go, of these, if you like this, that's the one for you. Or if you like this, that's the one for you. And and so um, I'm just, that was a, a call from my buddy um, who is in Dubai, Alex, who I met on the Hoffman process. He, he definitely looks like Jesus himself. And we've become, <laughs> like you and I have become good friends. It, it was that kind of connection that you and I had, I had with Alex. So uh, I'll have to take his WhatsApp call another time. But yeah, this, this is not to counteract all that we've said about don't be so intense. But of mm -hmm. the things that we've read um, between us, and we can sort of finish off with this in, in a moment and, and wrap up. Um, everybody knows with emotional intelligence, you know, lots of work, Daniel Goldman um, mm. and, and various people around that. It's it's quite dry. I don't find yeah. it that exciting. And he's done some more uh, material since then. It's OK, but I wouldn't, you know, if, you, if you're short of time, I wouldn't do it. Uh, Nancy Klein, I've already mentioned about, you know, you yeah. learn skills of speaking, but you need to learn skills of listening. Um, if I just mentioned a couple, then perhaps you uh, actually yeah, sure. regrets the dying. Um, fierce intimacy. Uh, one of the things that I want to have is a really good relationship with my wife and with my daughters. And and I've since I've come back from the Hoffman process, had some of the most meaningful, authentic conversations with my brother Graham, the remaining brother, uh, with my wife Lee, and and with my daughter Bryony, and with my other daughter Harriet. Albeit that we only had a short amount of time, but even in that time, she could tell 
that she was mm. having a, a real conversation at last. Nice. Um, and, and I'm looking forward to taking daddy and daughter time. We're going to go for about three, three days to Dubai. Um, it's a special time before uh, they both got engaged this, this year and before Harriet gets married and whatever Brownie decides to do. But it's going to be Lee encouraged me to take my two daughters away and have dad and daughter time. And we're going to have fun. We're going to laugh. We're going to have some great conversations. I know already. And they're coming up to see us in a, a couple of days time before Christmas. And so we'll also have some great chats nice. then. But the Fierce Intimacy book by Terry Reel, mm. a, a, an interesting psychologist, uses himself and his own vulnerability in such a lovely way with his wife of long standing. But this idea of of really understanding the one up, one down kind of thing, the grandiose grandiosity and shame, uh, I, I found that really helpful audiobook to listen to. Um, Reclaiming Conversations by Sherry Turkle. She talks mm. about this this digital detox and the fact that our kids these days, in fact, as adults, we're on the phone so much and the kids are trying to talk to us and we go, I'm busy right now. And of course, you're scrolling through complete social media crap or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, so, again, like we, you and I were saying earlier, many of these books, you can probably read it. They can condense into a chapter. You get the essence of it. Uh, so there's one two quite important bits in there, but not the whole thing. Finding and Keeping Love by Harville Hendricks, PhD. Again, mm. really good book about relationships and emotional intelligence relationships, mm. because that's what emotional intelligence, the heart of it, is having real conversations with yeah. people where relationships are, are strong. And finally, um, Daring to Trust by David Rich, which is, again, mm. this thing about trust between people and when it's broken and, and how can you feel psychologically safe enough to trust someone else and to open up and be vulnerable. So that's a few of those good ones to really help people with their relationships and emotions. What, what about for, for you, Greg? It's difficult to top those, Jonathan. And there's so many good books on this subject, aren't there? I mean, if you're not just talking about emotions, you're talking about relationships, happiness as well. Um, I've mentioned a few before, uh, obviously today, top, you know, the regrets of the dying by Bonnie Ware, um, Bronnie Ware, sorry. Um, well worth a read. Even if you just re read the five regrets, <laughs> that alone is probably worth it. If you want to dive into it, that's fine. I mentioned it previously, but I think it's a great study of emotional intelligence and how that both works for and against us is talking to strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, you know, I, I do, like Gladwell's style of writing. I know it's just, it's written almost as economic journalism, um, but it's done so well. Um, but really the whole premise of the book is like how we think we understand people. And, you know, a lot of it is blinded by bias, but how emotion is important in reading people as well. And how we, you know, we understand strangers and importantly, how we don't understand strangers based on previous emotional predispositions to those types of people so that i mean today that's really you know you think about that in the world of business hiring leadership it's all there and um, sapiens we mentioned before a great book if only really to understand where emotions comes in the role of human evolution you know we've got to understand why we have emotions right why are we emotionally intelligent and i think that whole subject is fascinating we think of emotions really as these sort of epiphenomena these byproducts of our behavior but ultimately we have emotions for a very good reason and, and we experience more emotions than any other animal 
And there's a, a very good reason for that is because emotions are absolutely core to our ability to communicate with each other. Like you talk about emotional intelligence and we are on, whilst we may not be the most intelligent animal, we are far by far the most communicative animal. And that has enabled us to go beyond small, you know, tribes to nation states to, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions, even billions of people based on our emotional capabilities, right? And that has enabled us as a species to evolve. So emotion is core to all of that. Um, those are great books. There are some ones we mentioned before, like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. We've already mentioned that today. You know, habit number five being seek first to understand, then be understood. That's really the core, isn't it? Like we talked about today, Jonathan, it's like, you know, like understanding your mother like is core to, you know, you being able to express yourself as well and your relationship with her, right? It's like if you understand people first and listen, like you talked about that ability to listen as well, the book you just mentioned, you know, that how important that is. I know everybody's talking about, oh, we've got to listen more, we've got to lean in, we've got to understand people and so on. But, you know, what really is listening? It's like putting the phone down. It's, you know, like having that conversation with people and not feeling that urge to jump in and fill the gaps, right? And like when somebody's talking, like, don't be afraid to give a follow-up question. <laughs> you know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm okay. Why? What's going on? Like, you know, you, yesterday we were like full of beans. Today you're okay. Like normally that's just a superficial conversation that gets, you know, gets straight to the point of let's talk about business now. So I think that's really important. The, there are cues in all of these books. Not, there isn't like, like you say, the emotional intelligence book by Daniel Goleman is quite dry, but if, if you can find that all these gems in all these books, even the Russell Brand book, Addiction and Recovery, I think there's so many gems about sort of coming out at different angles, like signals, if you like, distant signals about how we need to kind of calibrate our emotions and use them effectively. Beautifully put. And I think that's a nice way to wrap it up or just end with a appreciation. But um, I just think this is such an important area for us as humans uh, to have relationships with real conversations. And while I'm a bit thick in the head at the moment because I'm full of cold, and so <laughs> my brain isn't working as well as it, it was, I, I do want to appreciate, Graham, the quality of this conversation, which I think was an even deeper and more real mm. podcast than that others that we've done, which I've all, always enjoyed very much. I, that's one of the reasons I, I love partnering with you. But I, th I, I hope that people listening, you will think, how can I have a more real conversation with the people I love, with the people I work with, and that you live this integrated, inspiring leadership life, that which is all the parts that we've been talking about. Next mm. month, we're talking about resilience in against adversity, coping with resilience, but without being too damaging of other people. When you haven't got some of these parts sorted out, you're disintegrated. You're you're not you're not all together. And there's that lovely story of the father who's trying to keep his uh, small five year old son busy. And uh, he's doing some work on the phone, not listening and not being emotionally intelligent like we were discussing because he's trying to juggle many things. And he gives, uh, he tears a, a sheet out of a magazine and um, 
he uh, has a, it's a map of the world. He's his son and he rips it up into small pieces like a jigsaw and he puts it on this glass table. He says, look, put, put the world back together again. And, and he thinks that'll keep him busy for about an hour. And um, 10 minutes later, the son's come back. He said, I've done it, dad. And he's sellotaped it all together. And he goes, how did you do that? He said, well, dad, I, I lay on the ground and I, I thought it was a bit of a big problem. And as I looked up through the glass table, I saw there was a, there was an image of a man on the other side of the the picture of the world. And so when I put the man together, the world's together. Uh-huh. And I thought, that's just such a lovely analogy. Nice. When, when, when as a person, when we're together with our emotions, understanding our own and managing our own, understanding others and managing them, and understanding the environment we're in, then when we're together, the world is together. So my appreciation of you, Graham, is thank you so much for sharing about your family story, some very personal things there, and a recognition of the things you want to atone for, but also a a compassion for who you are and the amazing man that you are. And I'm I'm deeply honoured to be doing this podcast with you. Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm honoured as well, more so as it is your podcast. I've really enjoyed this journey, and it's the beginning, really. Well, I don't really see anything as as on the journey maybe one thing i've learned now and definitely has refined it during these conversations jonathan is i'm not seeing anything as a beginning a middle or end it just is now so like these conversations i've really enjoyed them um i do appreciate the fact that you've created this this sort of opportunity to have these conversations and you know i don't have these conversations with other people right and we're having them in public. What? The only people I have them there is all your listeners and, and you, Jonathan, and how wonderful that is. And it's a bit like your Hoffman experience. It's like, you know, if you get to the point, you can connect with people really fast, you know, and you could spend 30 years talking to somebody and not really know them. But you, like us, we've been talking for, I don't know, 30 weeks, maybe. I'm not sure. Mm. And like, I feel like I know you very well. And, you know, I do appreciate that. That's been a really stimulating journey and this is what it's about isn't it this is what it's about jonathan these are the conversations we don't have these conversations to get somewhere Mm. to achieve something to have some kind of you know net benefit from it this is the reason this is the this is the reward Mm. right for doing this it's like you know everybody says oh why should i do this and why should i have these conversations this podcast what I, I get and what I appreciate about this is this is the reason why you should do it is because this is actually what it's about. That having a really deep, meaningful conversation with somebody that you care about. To me, that's like, you know, we don't have that anymore in our lives. We don't, nobody sits around a campfire and has three hour conversations or an hour conversation with somebody about meaningful stuff. Yeah. These are all the sort of fantasy conversations that we think we will be having at some point in our life or we should be having but we don't nobody has that so i really appreciate that because you're creating that opportunity and you're making it happen and i've really enjoyed it and for me it's been a learning experience as well obviously learning from you along the way uh but also you know forcing myself or letting myself i suppose in the interest of this in the spirit of this podcast um letting myself go and understand myself a bit better as well so i really appreciate that graham thank you a real honor and everybody uh, i've really enjoyed uh, graham and i've really enjoyed being with you 
this week and I hope you enjoy it and listen to more. You can go to my website, jonathanperks.com. There's over 240 different podcasts and top tips from different leaders. Fill your boots, help yourself. It's a resource that's free to you. And you can go onto pickowl.com to uh, be in touch with Graham. Guys, thank you very much. And Graham, thank you. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.